what would you do uh, in this situation? Imagine with me uh, this Tuesday, uh, someone from our church, they, they ask you to meet them for coffee. They're going through a hard time of some situation and, and they need some help and direction. And they want to meet with you for coffee, so you agree to meet. And when you guys get a chance to meet, you're, you're a good friend, so you listen very carefully to what they are expressing. Indeed, while listening to them, you, you rightly demonstrate care and concern for them and sympathy for the hardship that they're experiencing. But then it, it comes your turn to talk. They finish sharing their experience, and they then ask you, so, so tell me, what are your thoughts? Now, you, you don't have to say it out loud, but it, think about being in that moment. It, they, they say, what are your thoughts? And after, I'm sure, expressing thanks to them, appreciation for him or her sharing their thoughts and, and expressing appreciation that they'd even ask for your thoughts. After you say that, I want you to think for a moment. You don't have to say it out loud, but what do you think would be the most beneficial question that would serve them in that moment? What do you think would be the most helpful question you could ask them? I would suggest that before you return to discussing all the intricacies of their, their difficult circumstance, one of the, the best questions you could ask them is this. You, you might say something like, you know what, uh, I really appreciate you asking me. Could, could I just pivot for a moment? And could I ask you this? And that's this question. And that is, who is God to you? Tell me, who is God to you? Now, now, why do you think this might be one of the most beneficial questions you could ask your brother or sister in the Lord who's going through a hard time? I want to suggest it's one of the most effective questions because it serves two purposes. First, you know what it does is it, is it brings God into the conversation, doesn't it? But then second, it helps you and the person you seek to love and to minister to, it helps them understand what their perception of God truly is. When you ask that question, you listen carefully, and you're wanting to discover for your ears and for their ears as well, well, who is God to them? What attributes do they mention or not mention? How is he described? You see, most often the person you are ministering to is in, is in pursuit. They're seeking some kind of relief. And what the Bible repeatedly teaches, and, it's, and God is so good to do this for us, what the Bible repeatedly teaches is that the relief we truly need is not found in better circumstances, but it's found in our God. In, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer makes this helpful insight, and I think he's spot on when he writes this. He says, the man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. 
And you know what? The author of Hebrews would agree. This morning, we're going to be studying Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. And you'll recall how last week we were exhorted in verse 12 to imitate those who inherit the promises. Remember this? God wants all his people to diligently persevere in the faith. But how can we do that? How can we be faithful to persevere, especially in the midst of hardships, especially in the midst of trials and suffering? Well, our text this morning, Faith, is going to teach us that our ability to persevere has everything to do with what we believe about our God. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that if we fail to grasp, and more importantly, if we fail to believe what this text teaches about God, we will be, not might be, we will be tossed to and fro, helpless in the storms of life. What storm are you experiencing? So what must we come to know and believe about God? Well, turn with me if you haven't already to Hebrews chapter 6. That's page 1004 in that paperback Bible that we provide out there in the foyer in the lobby. Faith, in this text, we learn several important truths about God, one of them being what God desires of each and every one of us. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 18. I'm going to actually, though, just bump back up just to get more of the context in verse 11. This is what we looked at last week. So in verse 10, he talks about how God is not unjust so as to overlook the work and the love that we've shown for his name and serving the saints. And then he says this in verse 11. He says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope till the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, author, what do you mean? Who are we to imitate? Give us an example. Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he, God, had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired, when God wanted, when God eagerly desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Why? So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement 
to hold fast to the hope set before us. Amen and amen. This is God's good word. Uh, this past April, right, uh, the night before Easter Sunday, a pastor friend of mine, uh, he suffered a terrible stroke. And actually for the next several weeks, we weren't certain as to whether or not he would live. Thankfully, uh, my pastor friend, he survived and he's doing uh, relatively well. However, the road to recovery since the stroke he suffered, the road to recovery continues to be a long and difficult one. He's had to relearn how to write and speak in some capacity. Even reading has presented some challenges. Well, my, my pastor friend, he's a really, really big fan of the TV series Psych. Any of you familiar with the show, TV series Psych? A few of you? Okay. And one of my friend's favorite characters on the show, uh, the character of Carlton Lasseter, played by this guy named Timothy. There he is. Well, several years ago, in real life, this actor, Timothy, he suffered the same type of stroke as my friend. And he's had the same type of struggles in recovery as my pastor friend. Well, as a surprise, this guy sent my friend a short video message. And the intent of the message was to encourage him on his journey to recovery. As you can imagine, this video message, it meant a very great deal to my friend. I mean, think about it. How thoughtful that someone like a famous actor would care enough to encourage my friend. How thoughtful. The title of my sermon is, What is God's Desire for You? And to be sure, the Bible answers that question in a variety of ways, doesn't it? Yet I, I want you to notice how Hebrews 6, 13 through 18 answers that question. For notice, what do verses 17 and 18 state? Have your eyes fall there. Faith, you know what God's desire for you is? It's encouragement. He wants you, Christian, to experience encouragement as you run the race of faith. Now think about how meaningful this is. The actor who plays Carlton Lasseter is famous, but you know who's even more famous? You know who's even more glorious? Who? God. And God cares so much for us that he wants us to be encouraged. Specifically, God desires us to be encouraged by his character. And why does he want that? Was the verse, the end of verse 18 makes clear, so that what we would lay hold of, we would hold fast to his promises. In fact, we could summarize this passage in this way, and that's this. God wants his character 
to encourage you to lay hold of his promise. God wants, he desires that his character, who he is, would give you encouragement. In fact, as we see here, he goes out of his way to show this so we would be encouraged to lay hold of his promise. As several astute commentators have pointed out, chapter 6, verse 18 is the main point of this section of Hebrews. God desires that his character would encourage you to lay hold of his promise. So to best understand this passage, let's go ahead and ask this text a couple of questions, okay? Let's ask the text a couple of questions. And the first question we need to ask is this, and that is, okay, what is the promise? Promise is spoken of through these verses. Well, what is the promise? Well, notice, how is it described there in verse 18? The very end of the verse it's referred to as, you notice there, the hope set before us. So this promise is about something in the future. It's, it's before us. And what could that be? Well, as you've been studying through the book of Hebrews, as the rest of Hebrews has demonstrated, this promise, this hope, it's future salvation in Christ. As you learned back in Hebrews chapter 4, it's, it's eternal rest. And even when we take, as we see throughout the book of Hebrews, the hope set before us is complete restoration to God on a new heavens and a new earth. It's final salvation. So that's what is the promise. Next, we need to ask, to whom does this promise apply? This, this final salvation, this this restoration to God on a new heavens and a new earth. Well, notice carefully how the recipients or object of this great blessing are described in two different ways. First, they are called heirs of the promise in verse 17. And who are those people? I mean, how, how does one become an heir of the promise? Like, I'm an heir to my earthly father and mother, my children are my heirs. And if there's anything left over that Steph and I don't spend on ourselves, they'll get to have something, right? <laughs> but that is an inheritance that is based on biology and physical descent. So, so what can it possibly mean to be an heir of God? Well, we'll notice the answer is found, I would suggest, in Galatians 3. I'm going to put this on the screen here in a moment. There we read in verse 16 what, what might at first appear to be a little discouraging. Because notice what Paul writes there. He says this. He says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now this could be discouraging because I'm not a physical descendant of Abraham. I'm a Gentile and my guess is, so are most of you. <laughs> But then Paul says this in the second half of the verse. He says, It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The ultimate and primary heir of the promises to Abraham is who? Jesus. So how does this then affect you and me? Well, Paul gives the answer later on in Galatians 3. We read that in verse 26. He says that in Christ, you are all sons and daughters of God through faith. 
So friend, please hear me this morning. If you are in Christ by faith, faith in his life, death, and resurrection, you're as much of son of God as Abraham or any other believing Jew. And then, and then we read this at the end of Galatians 3. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And here's the key. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings. What does it say? Heirs according to the promise. So when the author of Hebrews refers to the heirs of the promise, he means everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, male or female. Economic status doesn't matter. Ethnicity doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is not if Abraham's blood throws, flows through your veins, but if Abraham's faith is in your heart. But second notice, he describes these heirs as those who have fled for refuge. There in verse 18. This is an unmistakable reference to Numbers 35. God told Moses that when the people of Israel crossed over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, that they're to designate six cities of refuge. The city of refuge was a special city where someone who accidentally killed another person could flee and find safety until his case came before the people for judgment. So lest the family of the victim seek out immediate vengeance, the accused could find protection and refuge in one of these six cities. So, so here's, here's what the author of Hebrews is saying. This is another way of saying that just like sinners in the Old Testament who sought physical protection in a city of refuge, we who have sought spiritual protection in Jesus Christ, we're, we're those who have fled to Jesus. He is our city of refuge. We're safe in him. Why? Because Jesus forgives us of our sins. Amen? He forgives us of our sins so we do not have to fear judgment or wrath because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians are those who are heirs of the promise and those who have fled to Jesus. I see my sin. I know my sin deserves judgment. I'm trusting that his death was sufficient and resurrection was sufficient to forgive me of my sins. So God's promise is future salvation. And this promise applies to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone, those who have fled to him. And what I want you to notice is that the author of Hebrews wants us to lay hold of this promise, this hope. He wants us to inherit these promises. So let's ask another question. So what does that mean? What does it mean to lay hold of this future hope to these, this promise of God? Well, tell me, class, who does the author cite as an example of one who did just that? What does the text say? Who? Abraham. Notice, Abraham functions like exhibit A of one who, through faith and patience, inherited the promise. As several commentators have pointed out, the quote there in verse 14 is a reference to Genesis 22. And do you happen to recall the circumstances surrounding Genesis 22? Genesis 22, verses 16 through 17, was the moment 
after Abraham displayed his faith in God by his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. And after Abraham displayed his willingness to obey God and sacrifice Isaac, God, of course, provided the ram and the son was spared. But right after that moment, God swore by himself to surely bless Abraham and to multiply his descendants. I mean, you'll recall that prior to that moment, God promised Abraham land, offspring, and universal blessing. Yet tell me, when God initially promised Abraham that he would have many descendants, that he would have a son, tell me, was Abraham's son Isaac born shortly after God gave Abraham that promise? No. Many, many years, many decades passed before his son was born. So you know what that means? Abraham had to have what? Faith. What else? Patience. Oh, don't we love that? <laughs> right? As, it, as we tell our kids, and I think it's true, the hardest thing in the world to do is what? Wait. So notice, what strikes the author, and the reason why he's presenting Abraham as exhibit A, is because of Abraham's patience. He endured in faith as the years passed. Now, to be sure, when you read Genesis, there were ups and downs in his life, yet he persevered in believing. Indeed, when you read the Genesis account, how often did it seem as if the promises would not come to pass, right? For Isaac was a long time coming, and then after he arrived, what did God ask Abraham to do? Sacrifice him. Tom Schreiner helps us with this important application. He writes this. He says, the writer wants readers to imitate Abraham. The circumstances and suffering of life suggests that God's promises are a charade, that they are disconnected from reality. He goes on. But Abraham faced the same temptation as the readers, for he was tempted to think God's promise would not come true. Remember, decades, not, not days, not weeks, not months, he was tempted to think God's promise would not come true. Like Abraham, they should continue to believe even when their situation suggests God's promises are false. And what I want you to notice is that Abraham was not only patient, but he was obedient. Even when God commanded him to sacrifice his one and only son, so, so what does it look like to lay hold of this future hope? To lay hold of God's promise? It's to exhibit the same type of faith, patience, and obedience as Abraham as we await our final salvation. And here's the million-dollar question. How can we do this? How can we persevere and, and keep moving forward? to obey and to be faithful to our God? Well, the answer is by the encouragement of our God. And what I want to do is I want you to notice that there's three encouragements about God that God wants us to see and believe. These truths are meant to fuel our faith. These truths are meant to be on the forefront of our mind when someone sits down with you and you're having a hard time and they ask, who is God to you? This is what will come to mind. And this will provide you relief and comfort and an anxious, free heart 
and resilience and strength to persevere. So the first is this. The author wants us to be encouraged how God's pledge to his promise is himself. Look again there at verses 13 through 17. He writes, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who's that? That's you. That's me. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed this promise of future salvation with an oath. But when my brother Dave and I were about uh, little guys, we were about seven or eight years old, and I've mentioned this to you I think once before, or maybe more than once before, but if it's but pretend like it's the first time. When we were seven, eight, our dad made an incredible promise to us, an incredible promise. You know what that promise was? He promised to get us, listen, a go kart. Oh, we were so excited! Our little seven and eight year old little selves couldn't stand it. A go kart. You know how cool those are, and not one of those like battery operated ones that go slow, like a real, real fast one. We were so excited. Dave and I are still waiting to get the go-kart. <laughs> now, are we bitter at our dad? No. In fact, we bring it up every once in a while with him just to have a good laugh. He promised. When I was eight years old. Unlike many of our earthly fathers, God always makes good on his promises. He always keeps his word. And indeed, the example of Abraham's faith demonstrates that. But what I want you to do is I want you to notice what we learn about promises and how disputes over such promises are settled. What does verse 16 state? It states that people swear by something greater than themselves... And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. For example, uh, you wouldn't put much stock in my promise if I said to you this. And if I'm lying to you, I swear I will give you my dirty gym socks. Or I promise on the life of my pet hamster that I'll pay back every penny I owe to you, right? Those pledges, those oaths don't carry much weight, do they? And the reason is obvious, is it not? No one cares anything at all about my dirty gym socks or a pet hamster. Well, maybe the pet hamster. But, but, but not enough for it to hold them to their word. Right? Typically then, in order to make it clear that we mean what we say and that we almost definitely follow through on our promises, we swear an oath by appealing to something greater and more valuable and more precious than ourselves. 
Once that is done, as it says there in verse 16, the dispute is settled and the oath we've taken is the final confirmation that the person can trust us. Christian, God has promised future salvation for all who trust in Christ. And you know what? That promise is enough. He doesn't have to do anything more than that. Yet notice, God doesn't stop there, does he? Notice what we see God doing here. You know what God is doing? He's saying, look, I want to give my people strong encouragement. How can I encourage my people? I know what I'll do. I'll add an oath to my promise to show them how much I want to undergird their hope. So God thinks, so what shall I swear by? I could swear by the sun or the moon. They are great. Or I could swear by the world or by my people Israel whom I love, the, the apple of my eye. Or I could swear by the angels of heaven, Gabriel and Michael. But no, none of these is great enough to give the level of encouragement and hope that God, he's saying, I want to give to my people. Now, just consider for a moment how everything I just mentioned, how valuable it is to God. But there is one thing he values and esteems above all. There is one reality that he is less likely to dishonor and shame than any other. There is one person whose worth and honor and dignity and preciousness and greatness and beauty and reputation is more than any other values combined, 10,000 times more. And you know whose that is? God himself. God swears by himself. As it says there, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. As pastor and author John Piper has written, what God is saying in swearing by himself is that it is as unlikely that he will break his word of promise to bless us as it is that he will despise himself. God is the greatest value in the universe. There's nothing more valuable or wonderful than God. He goes on. So God swears by God. And in doing, he says, I mean for you, Christian, to have as much confidence in me as is possible to have. So when God says, Christian, in his word, by God, I, God, will never leave you or forsake you. He is telling us that it is unlikely that he will break his promise to bless and save us as it is that he will despise and dishonor his own name. Tell me, is there any likelihood that God will ever despise and dishonor his own name? No. Then there is no likelihood that he will ever break his word of promise to you and me of future salvation. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. The son will lose none that the father gives to him. Christian, isn't this good news? How kind is it of God to do this? Indeed, it is an act of kindness. You know why? Because God's word already 
is infinitely reliable and trustworthy. He, he, he doesn't have to swear at all. But why does he do so? He does so as a way to accommodate us, to help us. The oath itself adds nothing to the reliability of God's initial promise. It does not make God's statement truer than it would have been otherwise. Because God's word, for no other reason than that it's God's word, is indefectible and immutable and always rock solid and true. Yet because God wants to encourage you, I just, put your mind around that. God wants to encourage you, Christian. If for our sakes, in order that you and I may be greatly encouraged and overwhelmingly convinced, God added an oath. And his pledge is himself. But then second, be encouraged that God's purpose is unchanging. Notice how frequently this word is used here. Verse 17, so when God had desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So, several years after my dad made that promise about the go-kart, and I promise this, the sermon isn't all about go-karts, but after he made that promise, uh, we went to Knott's Berry Farm. Knott's Berry Farm is a theme park in Southern California. And you know what kind of rides they had it? And that's Berry Farm? I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Guess. Go-karts. They had go-karts. And as you can imagine, me and my brother Dave, we spent most of the day riding them. Well, after the park had closed and we were walking back to the van, my dad looked at me and Dave and with a mischievous smile on his face, he said, well, you both finally got your go-kart experience. Now, we, of course, laughed, but we said, we see what you're trying to do here, Dad. <laughs> what was he trying to do? He's trying to alter the promise. He's trying to tweak it. He's trying to change it. Notice, we are told that the way God acted to show more convincingly to us the unchangeable character of his purpose was to guarantee his word by two unchangeable things, Right? So what are they? What are the two unchangeable things? The first unchangeable thing is the promise itself. God doesn't promise to save you and protect you and preserve you until you enter into the full experience of your spiritual inheritance in the same way that you and I make promises. Right? There are numerous things that often interrupt and disrupt our ability to carry through on our promises or to alter them, like the initial promise of getting a go-kart might digress into simply riding one at a theme park, or the promise of a five-day vacation, five-day, might change to a three-day vacation. Our promises can either get disrupted or digress but not with God. He is infinitely powerful, infinitely truthful, infinitely resourceful, infinitely wise, and infinitely committed to bringing your salvation to complete perfection. Amen? 
The second unchangeable thing is his oath. God first promises and then swears by it. Right? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will complete in you the work I began when, I, when you first trusted Jesus. And not only that, I swear to you by my own name that what I've promised is true. I will appeal to myself and there's none higher that I will be true to my word to you. So these are the two things that are unchanging. And what an encouragement they are. But finally, be encouraged that God's person cannot lie. Look once more at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. Two years ago, uh, Forbes magazine published an article on a recent study some researchers did about lying. And what the researchers did is for 91 straight days, they asked 621 people to meticulously record how many times they lied each day. And after collecting all the data, the researchers, they came up with categories of people, three categories of people. And here are the three categories. There were um, honest people, and intermediate liars, and prolific liars. Honest people, intermediate liars, and then prolific. Prolific liars were those who lied six or more times a day. That, that wasn't so surprising. What was surprising was who the researchers determined to be honest people. You know who they considered honest? People who just lied two times per day. That's honest? Among other things, the study revealed just how frequently we all lie to one another and to ourselves. I mean, I mean think about how ubiquitous lying is in our culture. We frequently spend the data to press our advantage, don't we? We are often reluctant to present honest evidence. And the reality is, and this is what's sad in our cultures, we all know this, and we often just accept it. Yet that is not the way of our God. Amen? Our God cannot lie. If he lied, he would deny the very nature, his very nature, as the God of truth, whose very word is truth. This is why his promise and pledge are certain. So let me just drill down here and kind of circle back. Christian, what hardship are you going through? What circumstance is making you anxious or upset? What trial is weighing you down? Now let me ask, who is God to you? What do you believe about God? Indeed, what do you believe about his promises? Promises not only concerning future salvation, but promises about his care and provision for his own. We've had a lot of people in our church experience time in the hospital recently and some people in the days and weeks ahead are going to be spending some time in the hospital. 
when you're all alone on the operating table? Do you believe God is with me because he promises he'll never leave me nor forsake me? When the bills come in and you keep falling short, even though you're trying your best and you're financially strapped, do you believe, you know what? He says he values me more than the the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. I, I can trust him. Do you believe that he is sovereign and in control, doing all things for your good and his glory, even in the midst of the hardship you're experiencing? Do you believe that God is good and that he stands above it all and that his promises are certain? Tozer is right. A correct belief about God can relieve a thousand temporal problems. And as the author of Hebrews has been pressing in to encourage the original readers and us to persevere and to not fall away, he wants us, indeed God himself wants us, to be encouraged by the character of our God so that we would run the race with faithfulness. Amen? May we dwell upon these and may these truths work themselves deep into our hearts knowing that our future is certain because our God who promises pledges by himself. Amen? Let's pray.